Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technology. I'm your host, Tiasha Zaitz. Remember that warm, fuzzy feeling Christmas music gives us? That positive sense about the new year and new opportunities that are just a few days away? Or the energetic, high-beat music that makes it a breeze to run 10 instead of 5 miles? I could go on with obvious examples of music affecting our mood and well-being, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. You will hear how music is being scientifically researched and designed to serve as a digital therapeutic. I talked to Brian Harris, the CEO of MedRhythms. MedRhythms is a digital therapeutics company building direct stimulation solutions that use clinical-grade sensors, AI-driven software, and music to help restore function lost to neurologic disease or injury. MedRhythms received a breakthrough device designation from the FDA for their patented digital therapeutic that treats chronic stroke walking deficit. More about that in just a few minutes. Enjoy the show and do check the recap on our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com And if you haven't yet, do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. Now, to music! Brian, we listen to music because we like it without thinking too much about all the effects that it has. What prompted you to start the research around the healing effects of music? You know, as we think about music in general, music is, uh, you know, a stimulus that has really been pervasive in, in all cultures uh, throughout the world. And um, historically, we've always known as human beings, right, that music has a profound impact um, uh, on us uh, as humans. But it really has been just the recent, you know, 20 to 30 years that have shown us through advancements of neuroscience and neuroimaging um, research that has really shown from a, an objective and neuroscience perspective just how profound that impact can be. Um, and, and for me, growing up, um, I'm from Maine, originally from a very small town in Maine, and I always loved music and loved uh, performing and loved being uh, a part of music and connecting with music in that way. And as I was thinking about uh, sort of profession, college, post-college, what it would look like, um, I actually stumbled by accident on the field of music therapy and thought, you know, the idea of using music to help people um, seemed very compelling to me. I knew that the future for me always was going to involve music as an important part of my life in some way, more than just a hobby. But I also knew that music education was really not the right approach for me either. So music therapy, the idea of using music to help people, um, just made a lot of sense. And then the more that I, I sort of dove into the literature and dove into the science, it just blew me away that there was this body of evidence that showed that music could have a profound impact uh, and really universal impact on on the human brain from things like movement and language and cognition um, across the board, actually allowing us to think about music 
less so through a social science lens or how music makes us feel, but really through the lens of neuroscience objectively of how music can, can literally impact our brains. Um, and that's really what got me started. The link between music and emotions uh, has been accepted for a long time. It makes total sense for us because we feel differently if we listen to different music. But can you perhaps tell us a little bit more about when did researchers start to look at how listening to music could impact uh, physiological problems? Yeah, well, it's really interesting because I think if we look at the history of, you know, music and health research, you know, it seems that we've always known, as you, as, as you have said, that music has its impact on emotions and on humans uh, in general. That I think if we look back historically, even the field of music therapy in general was founded in about the mid 1950s, where we started to see that music could actually have a tangible impact on health. I think that as the founders of music therapy were doing this research, understanding it from a brain perspective is actually what they were looking for. They were trying to understand, you know, more objectively than just how it makes us feel, how can it have an impact on physiology, but technology and research capabilities weren't there yet. And it was about the, you know, as we think about specifically related to med rhythms, and, you know, we'll, we'll dive more into this in a bit, but we're really focused on the impact of music and specifically rhythm to engage the motor system to improve walking um, and improve movement, we actually see that it was the mid-1970s that were some of the seminal works in the field that showed that you could use rhythm to engage the motor system because of how our auditory and motor systems are connected in the brain. And that was really the first uh, look into the idea that we could use rhythm as an external cue to change physiology or how somebody moves. And then it was in the, uh, the early uh, 1990s, uh, there was sort of the, the founder of the field of neurologic music therapy, Dr. Michael Tout, who is now based at the University of Toronto, did some of the earliest clinical research, taking this idea of using music or rhythm as an external cue to improve movement and actually applying it to people who had movement disorders. So things like stroke and Parkinson's disease and MS, and really saw immediately the profound impacts that it could have to improve functions. So that was about, you know, we started in mid-1970s, that was mid-1990s, and then fast forward to the, the early 2000s is, you know, technology has finally caught up with um, um, our ability to understand what's happening from a, from a neurologic and, and physiological perspective such that we can start to answer these questions uh, more from a brain perspective of what's happening um, neurologically that then impacts our, our physiology or our function. So for an illustration, can you perhaps describe a bit how do therapies with music look like for patients with stroke, <clears throat> Parkinson's disease, cerebral palsy, or traumatic brain injury, and what role do wearables and technological devices have in this story? Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, as as I started my um, my career, um, I was a clinician at um, at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital uh, in Boston, which is the Harvard Medical School affiliate for for neuro rehab hospitals and one of the top rehab hospitals uh, in, in the country. 
And uh, I was trained as a board-certified music therapist with advanced training in the neuroscience of music and how that can be clinically applied um, through what's called neurologic music therapy. I was treating patients hands-on using live music on their stroke and brain injury units. And for example, what we see uh, on the stroke units, it's a very common deficit following um, following pe- people who've experienced stroke, which is the the inability to walk. We, we see that it impacts somebody's ability to move one side of their body, what we call a hemiparesis, uh, where one side of their body doesn't take the same size steps uh, or move as well as the other side of that body. When that happens, it impacts their entire um, sort of ability to to move or to walk by uh, typically people walk slower. Uh, they take shorter steps. Um, as I said, one side moves differently than the other side. So they have what we call an asymmetry um, in their walking. It impacts their balance. All of these things, which, as you can imagine, are, are critical components to somebody's ability to be independent. It really sort of strips people of their independence when you would take away their ability to move or to to walk. And what the research shows and what we were doing in, in person was we were delivering an intervention called rhythmic auditory stimulation, which is a standardized intervention based upon the neuroscience of rhythm and how rhythm can engage the motor system to improve walking. What the research shows and what we were seeing in practice was that when people walk to rhythm who have had uh, movement deficits, so something like a stroke that impacts the way that they move, when they move or when they walk to rhythm, it improves their quality of walking. So we see that people are actually able to walk in time with the rhythm of the music. When they do walk in time with the rhythm of the music, it improves their symmetry. It improves their speed. It improves their balance, and it also has a potential to uh, increase or decrease their fall risk. These things are so highly correlated to independence and falls that we were just seeing drastic outcomes um, at, within the hospital using this intervention. And really, when we were seeing those uh, outcomes, you know, the the demand for the services that I was providing there in the hospital, both from physicians who were who were writing orders for me to see their patients, but also from patients and their family members who were saying, you know, Brian, you helped my dad walk again. How do I get more of this when I leave the hospital? And at the time, the answer was really, there's nothing you can do. Um, as a clinician, that's an, that's an awful conversation for, for me to have with a uh, patients and their family members on a regular basis. And it was really based upon those outcomes and that need that we thought we need to figure out a way to bring this to the people that need it. As you can imagine, there aren't many people throughout the world that are trained to be able to deliver this intervention, and you know, very specifically trained in the neuroscience of music and how that can be clinically applied. Um, even, you know, and, and, and unfortunately, not everybody has access to the Spalding Rehab Hospitals of the world, you know, in these large metro areas. And we just came to the conclusion that we needed to figure out how we could replicate and scale this. And the only way to do that was technology or through digital therapeutics. And with the advancements of these types of wearable technologies to be able to give us data in real time, to give us an insight into how somebody's functioning is what has enabled MedRhythms to really grow um, as a digital therapeutics company because you know we're uh, using sensors that collect clinical grade biomechanics. So that can actually give us real time insight to how somebody's walking 
and then building software on top of that to actually change music and and deliver music that um, is therapeutically valuable that can improve the way that they walk. Um, and so I think that wearables not only have the opportunity to help us scale something that's not scalable um, with people, but also can give us, I think, much more objective and, and high level and, and actually more deeper level insights into uh, into our patients functioning. Can you talk a little bit more about the studies uh, and what they've shown regarding the efficacy of uh, this therapy compared to conventional therapies, which I assume are uh, based on medications to a large extent? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question as we look back over the history of of this research. And I'll focus this on as you mentioned, there's a there's a breadth of research on music and the brain, you know, across diagnoses, across functioning areas and at Medrithms we focus really on gait training. So I think I'll you know, I'll dive in there as we look at the research on rhythmic auditory stimulation. That started really as sort of translational or clinical research where we We're looking at, and we being the field of research, we're looking at how rhythmic auditory stimulation could improve functional outcomes. So things like speed, symmetry, stride length, etc. And the, the early studies in the early 1990s demonstrated that rhythm had the profound effect to impact those uh, outcomes in stroke, Parkinson's disease primarily. Since then, over recent, uh, more recent years, those uh, studies have been replicated in cerebral palsy, um, in traumatic brain injury, in MS, and also actually in the aging population as well, that rhythmic auditory stim stimulation can improve outcomes in walking in those um, who are not neuro-impaired. From there, it's been very interesting over recent years with the advancements, as I said, of neuroimaging uh, and, and, and neuroscience research that we've also started to be able to understand this from a more deeper or, or neural perspective. Um, number one being we've there's been recent research showing how rhythmic auditory stimulation can actually impact dopamine, which what we know about dopamine is that it's important for movement in those specifically who have Parkinson's disease. Uh, Parkinson's disease is a dopaminergic um, uh, ha or has dopaminergic deficits uh, in people with Parkinson's disease, which impacts the way that they move. And it's been shown that rhythmic auditory stimulation can, from a chemical perspective, can actually impact dopamine. We've then also been able to, to move beyond sort of the deep neuroscience, too, and think about, well, what are the impacts of improving walking? You know, that might seem obvious to the people that are, you know, listening here to uh, to the podcast, but when we think about why is improving walking important? Well, obviously, it gives people an improved quality of life. It allows people to be independent such that even, you know, things that we would take for granted, those of us who don't live with a neuroinjury disease, like being able to cross the street when we want. Um, but the, the actual signal lights when you cross the street, when the pedestrian lights flash, are actually based upon an average person's ability to walk across the street based upon their speed. So any deficit of speed actually means that we can't get across the street before the light changes. So it has real impacts on somebody's independence or ability to be in the community. But it also has big impacts on things like falls. We know that people are re-hospitalized um, following neurodisease and injury due to falls often. And it's a huge cost 
to the healthcare system. When people fall and break a hip, it can cost thirty to fifty thousand dollars. But the research actually shows that uh, improving things like gait speed and gait variability are the two things that are most correlated to falls. So if we can improve walking, can we actually have an impact on falls? Um, and there has been some recent research in rhythmic auditory stimulation that has shown exactly that. It has shown that um, we can improve walking, but also we can reduce falls by purposefully using um, this intervention. So we're really starting to see this foundation and breadth of research <clears throat> supporting from a clinical to a neuroscience perspective, and then also sort of translational into what do these improvements mean? Some of the other research just at a high level that I'm really excited about is, you know, Medrhythms did a study using our product and we saw that people actually improved their walking efficiency or walking economy, which is a measure of oxygen consumption while walking. The people actually are walking faster, also walking more efficiently. Um, and then also we've seen that uh, engaging in these interventions with music also aids in the process of neuroplasticity. So the brain's ability to create new connections or strengthen old connections throughout our entire lives. Um, so really this breadth of research that is, is quite compelling and exciting um, for our ability to impact healthcare. You mentioned before that one of the things that was frustrating for you as a clinician was that you had to tell patients that once they leave the hospital, there's nothing that you can do uh, for them. So how does med rhythms work? How is it accessible? How do patients get to use it? We have built our digital therapeutic to replicate rhythmic auditory stimulation autonomously without the need of a clinician present. So we've built a platform that uses sensors that connect to the shoe that collect clinical grade biomechanics in real time. So we can collect all of that data about how somebody's walking. So all those parameters that I previously mentioned being uh, symmetry, stride length, uh, speed, all those things that I would look at as a clinician, our, our sensors can now uh, 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 pick that up and analyze that data in real time which feeds into our uh, software algorithms, which are based upon a mobile device. And then based upon that data that's coming in, we augment music or we change music parameters. So we uh, change the tempo of music, add rhythmic salience to the music to make the music therapeutically valuable, to engage that damaged motor system to improve functional outcomes. And this happens in a closed loop manner um, over the course of a 30-minute session. So user walks, we collect the data, data hits our algorithms, algorithms change music and deliver rhythmic auditory stimulation. Um, and this closed loop happens, as I said, continuously over the course of an entire session. And so we've really essentially taken the clinical thinking of a clinician trained in rhythmic auditory stimulation, and we've turned it into an algorithm to be able to do this autonomously to push people to improve their walking speed and their walking quality um, and do it safely. How many partners do you have? In 2019, you partner up with the Swiss company GateUp, which basically um, has world-leading scientific expertise in motion analysis for over 18 years. What kind of other partners do you have? 
Yeah. So as we think across um, the organization, our you know strong partners really are you know we have uh, as you mentioned a partnership with GateUp for the biomechanical sensors. We're also partnering with leading clinical and research institutions across the country for our clinical trials. Um, for our stroke trial, we've partnered with uh, Boston University. We've partnered with the top rehabilitation hospitals in the country, being Spalding, as I mentioned, the Kessler Foundation, um, Shirley Ryan Ability Lab in Chicago, Mount Sinai, leveraging their expertise and their research to, to push forward our pipeline. We're also working with the Cleveland Clinic right now on a study in multiple sclerosis. Um, and we have about five to six uh, studies across our pipeline that are going to be starting in the coming months as well with some of those top research institutions across the country that we're really excited about. So we think it's important in order to build a, a product that is going to be used in the wild and, and, and the wild being in people's homes that is going to be prescribed, that's going to be FDA approved to really have that strong therapeutic merit that we believe that it has. And I mean, we are as a company, I mean, we're seeing drug-like outcomes with the interventions that we're delivering. And for us to, to really capture that value, we think it's important that each of these products goes through rigorous, then sort of augment and make therapeutically valuable. That's why we put a lot of weight um, and focus on these clinical uh, uh, partnerships. Um, and then the other sort of partners that we work with are, are music content providers as well. So the, the providers um, that uh, give us access to, to music to use that we can. In the summer of 2020, you received a breakthrough device designation from the FDA for your patented digital therapeutic that treats chronic stroke walking deficit. Your solution is going to be released in 2021. So what's the, what's the scale of the patients that you're going to serve or predict to, to use your solution? Yeah, we were, we were very excited, uh, this year, um, and, and really honored to be, to be given breakthrough designation, um, on our chronic stroke asset. You know, the breakthrough designation program through the FDA really demonstrates for products that based upon existing evidence is believed to have the potential to meet a high unmet need. As we look at the chronic stroke population, these are folks that are at least six months post-stroke. Um, it's historically thought that when people reach the six-month post-stroke point, that that's where they've plateaued uh, functionally, that there isn't a lot of uh, opportunities for them to get better. We recently understand that that actually, you know, through neuroscience and neuroplasticity research, that perhaps that's not true. Um, but because of this sort of six-month plateau that it's believed, there's really no interventions available to people at this stage post-stroke. Some people might be getting physical therapy interventions or being prescribed to go to the to the gym or recommended rather than prescribed, but recommended to go to the gym or these types of exercise interventions. But there's really nothing on the market that's been shown to have an impact in this population. And so based upon some early data that, that we have and some feasibility work, we're seeing some good results, you know, uh, in, in this population that there is a potential that we can have an impact there. By virtue of that, 
we will be able to to deliver this intervention post FDA approval. There's about 3.5 million people that live in the United States right now that have are living with chronic stroke walking deficits. Um, and so that's really the, the people that we are approaching. And that's just in the U.S. alone. You know, we're focused here for now. But this really has global implications. You know, strokes and, and neurodisease and injuries don't don't happen in isolation. You know, it's a global problem um, that we will address. But we look at, you know, that initial market in the U.S. of being the 3.5 million people that um, really have uh, walking deficits but don't have a way to uh, or a validated way um, to to improve them. How are you approaching scaling? And what I mean by that is making your solution available to patients. Because one of the common issues that digital therapeutics face is that it's hard to get them reimbursed because in order to do that, the insurance companies have to have a definition of uh, or a number, you know, that, that's used for billing purposes. If we think about access, right, to digital therapeutics, so getting this to the 3.5 million people that need this just in chronic stroke, reimbursement is going to be a key aspect of doing that successfully. We want everybody to have access to this, you know, regardless of socioeconomic status. It's important. And so we are approaching this in the same way where we are focused on getting reimbursement. I believe that Step one to that is developing good clinical outcomes and good clinical research, which we're well on our way to show that this works, that we can use that as data to support our efforts in reimbursement. And number two, I think that's also the great thing about digital therapeutics is that the data that can be collected from them, both pre-launch and post-launch, can help to support those efforts in, in reimbursement. But without a doubt, it's going to be, you know, something that we're, we're working on you know, diligently now, but, you know, it's part of the puzzle. One is getting getting doctors to prescribe it, getting patients to use it, and then uh, ultimately getting uh, payers to, to reimbursement. And we're optimistic about what that looks like from here, um, from our point of view. Do you by any chance have any calculations that would show what are the cost savings or impacts of using your solution? You know, that that's what usually works for insurers and payers. Yeah, those types of health economic studies are, are, I think, are also necessary as we think, you know, there's clinical outcomes that are necessary, but how do those clinical outcomes correlate to costs? You know, in, in our, uh, uh, the world that we live in, in improving walking and fall prevention, you know, we can make, uh, we can see those, uh, cost savings in terms of, you know, uh, the lack of hospitalizations or the, the decrease of hospitalizations, the decrease of falls, improving independence, improving walking speed, have all been shown to have actual impacts on healthcare utilization. Those are numbers specifically that I can't share at the moment because they're sort of underway. However, there is uh, serious cost benefits here. But, you know, these are the things that all digital therapeutics companies are going to really need to be focused on into the future is how do we show clinical impact, but also how do we show economic impact um, by virtue of improving those outcomes? I would assume that if the state is improved, that also impacts the uh, use of medications. It could potentially, you know, we we look at this, I think in some cases, you know, it could be a drug replacement in some of our um, um, neuro injury and disease states that there are, you know, drugs out there that look at similar endpoints that we look at. 
we think that there could be an opportunity for for us to also, you know, if worked or if used in tandem with drugs, could we see a greater impact potentially for a, you know, one plus one equals three type of outcome? Or is there some sort of, you know, augmented care of, um, you know, as you said, just less of the drug and more of this type of intervention? I think there's a lot of opportunities to study that um, into the future. More specifically in the neurodegeneratives, there's a lot of potential there. With what kind of patients are you mostly working at the moment? Can you illustrate through an example of how, what you, when, you, when you're working with a patient, how the therapy looks like? How do you personalize the music and the rhythm for a specific uh, patient? So how does the whole journey look like? So as I mentioned, this is a, a, a system of the digital therapeutic that is an autonomous system that you use in home, such that there is no need for a clinician present. Our initial product for chronic stroke, um, these are folks that um, have deficits to walking largely in the areas of symmetry and variability of walking and speed deficits. So we have sensors that uh, are Bluetooth connected to the shoe. So they or they connect to the shoe, and then they Bluetooth connect to a mobile device. So the user puts the one sensor on each shoe. Uh, they start the application on a mobile device. Um, they're wearing headphones, which deliver the uh, the auditory input or the, or the the music, to to put it simply, I guess. And then the user walks um, initially at baseline um, at their comfortable walking speed. And we calculate all of those clinical parameters of symmetry and stride length and variability, et cetera. From there, we start the user uh, with music that is tuned to that person's baseline walking. So it's largely tempo related. So we um, start uh, music at the tempo that the person is walking. So if they're walking at 80 steps per minute, we can start the music at around 80 beats per minute. But then in real time, we collect measures of quality of walking. We collect also measures of their ability to walk to the beat of the music on a step-to-step basis, really high-fidelity data. Um, and then in real time, based upon how the user is walking, if they're walking well, the algorithms then challenge them by changing rhythmic elements of the music to have them walk faster or slower, et cetera. If they're not walking well, we give them more auditory input. So we give them higher beat strength or higher rhythmic content within the music to help to improve those qualities. And we can also change the tempo of the music as well or augment the tempo of the music as well to adjust if somebody's walking well or not. For the stroke product, this is used for 30-minute sessions. So the person is walking to the music for 30-minute sessions. And in real time, the algorithm, as I said, is uh, is calculating the the data of how they're walking, how they're responding to the music, and then the uh, algor- the clinical thinking algorithms is changing the music to challenge them within the session. So it's a constantly an individualized, so it's based upon their data, and then it's progressive and challenging in that it challenges them within a session to improve and to push them towards their their clinical goals. It's also individualized in the sense that we're using music that is engaging and motivating. We have the ability to use any piece of music and augment it uh, as an, uh, a way to actually make it more engaging and motivating to use and adhere to the intervention, uh, but also to help impact outcomes as well. 
To which extent is your solution a standalone option? And to which extent are potentially advisors, trainers still involved? It's a good question. And as we've built the system, we've built the system to be completely independent and standalone in the real world. You know, we need a doctor to prescribe it outside of having a doctor prescribe it. There is no need for a clinician to be in the loop and interfacing with the patient. We really wanted this to be accessible and, and not to put any additional burden onto doctors, physicians, physical therapists who may be treating these patients. And so we really wanted it to complement what was, what was being done or <clears throat> in some cases in chronic stroke, not being done for, for gait training, but really as a standalone therapeutic that can be used independently in the home. How many patients were involved in the studies that you did so far, you know, to build the whole algorithm and optimize it? We've done hundreds and hundreds of hours of product testing to get the algorithms where they need to be or, or to get the algorithms where they are today. And we've also run multiple clinical trials uh, within uh, clinical within chronic stroke to get there as well. You know, as we think about each of our products, each of our products is um, individually tuned and in individually built as an independent product. So we have a, a product for chronic stroke, a product for MS, a product for Parkinson's disease, a product for aging. And each one of those products requires intensive uh, testing and retesting to build the algorithms to get them clinically right to respond to that disease state. Because how we respond to somebody who has Parkinson's disease from an auditory and rhythmic perspective and clinical perspective is different than how we respond to somebody for stroke. So each one of our products undergoes uh, tremendous uh, amounts of of uh, product testing with stroke survivors or people living with PD or people living with MS to build the algorithms and then run through the, the uh, clinical trials as well to prove efficacy um, of those algorithms. Given everything we've said regarding the impact music can have on our well-being psychologically and physiologically, is there any advice, you know, that you can give us? in regards to how we can, should, or could listen to music and use it for the better improvement of health? I would say that music is important to human beings across the lifespan. Um, and regardless of age or culture or ability or disability, and incorporate music in your life always. But we really need to be thoughtful and purposeful about how we use music in a medical way to improve outcomes. You know, I, I've been very fortunate to be able to to really travel the world and give presentations about the neuroscience of music and how important music is to the human condition. And I believe wholeheartedly, based upon what we were seeing in the clinic and the research that exists, that what we know and how we understand how music impacts the brain, that it will change the landscape of global healthcare. I think it's it's just a matter of time and, and awareness of this. My general feedback is. You know, music is good for psychological well-being. Use music, listen to music, play music. Playing music also impacts neuroplasticity. It creates the healthy brain. It creates stronger connections in the healthy brain. Incorporate music in education. If uh, administrators and uh, legislators and administrators in, in schools understood what we know now about how music can be used to improve outcomes, that they would never dream 
of cutting a music program in education because it's that important. It's been shown to have correlations to improved education outcomes, improved mental health outcomes. It's drastically important. And I think that that's an important foundation to set because as we think about how it's used to for rehabilitation, to improve outcomes, that's where it becomes a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more difficult to say, if you don't have a therapist, if you don't have a digital therapeutic to do this, to just use music. Because as we know, uh, specific for Medrhythm's case, I get asked this question all the time about, well, how can I just use music? What playlist can I listen to to improve the way that I walk? Or what genre of music can I listen to to improve the way that I walk? And really, that's, that's not the case because we have to use music purposefully and clinically and therapeutically in order to see the outcome if we're trying to rehab a function. So just passively listening to music does not change the way that somebody walks. Randomly listening to music also does not change the way that somebody walks. And in fact, may be more dangerous for that person if they're trying to to walk to music that is not at the right tempo, with not the right beat salience, and not the right rhythmic parameters that actually could have a negative impact on them. Much like any sort of therapy that we would we would want to get physical therapy, speech therapy, we wouldn't just tell our patients, well, you don't need physical therapy, you can just go for a walk. Or you don't need a speech therapy, just talk more. That really, when we think about using music for rehabilitation, it needs to be done in a purposeful therapeutic and clinical way. Is there any latest research that surprised you in any way? And maybe just to go back also to the question of accessibility of these therapies, what's the best way for patients to try to get them? Is it just by going to directly, for example, to your company page? How's that uh, progressing? In terms of access to the the research? No, no, the actual solutions, you know, because you, you mentioned that this has been researched for 20 to 30 years. Now your uh, solution is going to be available next year. And is it just going to be based on the, the hospitals or healthcare institutions that you're partnering with? Or can patients impact access on their own? Yeah, I mean, we hope as we roll this out that we will be able to to reach people regardless of uh, of their location. And I do think that patients play an important role in their own care and in terms of advocating for what they want and advocating for what they need in terms of clinical care. And so I would encourage folks that, you know, with with our digital therapeutic, when the time comes for, for it to be launched or, or any other digital therapeutic or any other product that they need, to be advocates for their own care, to ask their doctors how to get uh, to get access to it. You know, from our perspective, when we roll this out, we hope that it will be uh, be able to be available to everybody that needs it and wants it. And we'll be working with folks um, really across the country to enable that to happen, that it won't just be in the big cities, but really wherever you are in the world, if you need help, that we'll be able to provide it. Is there anything that has recently surprised you in the progress that the research is making in the field or something that you're excited about? Absolutely fascinating to me, the amount of research that exists and how fast the research is evolving and just how profound and compelling the research is as well. You know, we see 
one of the things that I mentioned earlier was these new research on, on how it impacts things like falls to show that you could use music purposefully to reduce somebody's falling rates that has Parkinson's disease. It's fascinating. The fact that it could have an impact on dopamine, that music we now understand from a neurochemical perspective. So not just functionally how it impacts movement or how it impacts, impacts behavior, but actually how it's impacting the chemicals in the brain is absolutely fascinating. And then I also get actually also really excited about some of the data that we're seeing with our own digital therapeutic, that we're able to see this sort of autonomized system produce these outcomes um, but also that, you know, we're looking at novel endpoints, this walking efficiency that I mentioned. We're looking at oxygen consumption while walking. And we're seeing that when people walk to music, that their brains function more efficiently, allowing their bodies to function more efficiently, and that they're actually able to consume or expend less oxygen while they're walking because of music. And it's something that I think why that's so exciting is it's something that we've always known was powerful, but we've never known to what extent. And it's something that I think that can be leveraged in a way that is accessible to people, that people can generally understand, and that people will be motivated to do and to engage in. And that's what I get so excited about is the potential to literally change healthcare using music. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. The easiest way is to go to www.lovethepodcast.com slash faces of digital health and you will be redirected to the platform appropriate for your device. Thank you. Any review or rating is a huge boost for my motivation to continue the search for relevant topics inside global digital health. Stay tuned. <laughs>